The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello! And welcome to the Five Star Sandwich edition of Sleep Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. We have new governments all over Southern Europe. We have a new government in Italy. We have a new government in Spain. We have Donald Trump tweeting out the jobs report before it even happened, which I'm sure has to break. I have no idea how many rules. We're not even going to talk about Are we going to talk about that? I have no idea. We're definitely going to talk about sandwiches because obviously, you know, I'm English. I like my sandwiches. Sandwiches, it turns out, are worth billions of dollars. Yay. Good for sandwiches. Um, a torta is a sandwich. A hot dog is not a sandwich. We are having debates about falafels. We are going to talk about the Volcker rule, which is being changed. It is going to be changed from one thing to another thing. And lefty types, I'm, hope, I'm hoping that Emily Peck is going to be a lefty type here. Wow. Uh, uh, um, lefty types are going uh, up in arms. Are you up in arms about the Volcker rule? Uh, I'm in a middling arms state. I'm kind of, She's, my arms are sort of dangling <laughs> over the table right now, but they're not all the way in the air. We're, so we're going to talk about that and whether whether there's any reason for distress, panic, or other f- forms of visible um, running around in circles. But Anna Shemansky being here and being the expert on all like crazy fucked up countries, um, you can tell us what is going on in Italy because we had like genuine market turmoil this week. Okay. So when you're talking about what happened in Italy this past week, there are two things. There's a fundamental issue and there's a technical issue. We can first get into the fundamental issue a a little bit, which is that you have a populist government that had been elected in Italy, which was this coalition between this far right um, league and the far left five star movement. Can we just interject that the party names in Italy are amazing <laughs> and I love them and I I want to have parties called the League and Five Star. And also I will, I will I will I will say away. that the five Please star movement is not really far left. It's it's kind of just we don't like I I call them like or establishment. Yeah, they're, they're, they're anti-establishment. Kind of neo-anarchist. Mm-hmm. They they were founded by literally a comedian. Beppe it's Grillo. True. And in in true kind of crazy comedian style, he would just go up on stage and rail against the politicians. And that's basically the entire basis of the Five Star Movement is we hate the politicians. It's not that they're far left. They just hate the politicians. Yes, but they're also anarchists who want a lot of additional spending. <laughs> just so, saying. So in any case, but, you, these, these two um, very odd bedfellows, the anarchistic... Um, Five Star Movement and the Northern League. Well, they're called the League now. They used to be called the Northern League. They were kind of far right, sort of Northern Italian separatists, anti-immigrant, very anti-immigrant, very unpleasant. These two parties have almost nothing in common with each other except for the fact that they hate the incumbent elite politician class, and they managed to kind of cobble together a coalition against. I mean, it took them months to get there, um, and then. 
in in a fit of complete crazy because they are completely crazy crazy they decided that they were going to nominate a diehard like 81 year old euro skeptic economist as their finance minister and that was a step too far for the president of italy who's led said you can't do that because that would be the end of the country and that caused the market turmoil but that now they have actually now they've bumped savona off to some to, to some other Brussels job, and they are actually going to form a government. Yes, they are going to form a government. So we can get into some of the problems with Italy and Spain and Europe in general, but the market panic we saw, especially the panic in the bond market, I would argue is far less about what was actually happening and far more about technical issues in the market. Okay, so the to be like, this is a fun story. The market didn't care when these crazies won the election. The crazies win the election, and what the, the thing that everyone is looking at is the Italian two-year bond yield. Don't ask me why everyone is looking at the Italian two-year bond yield, but that seems to be the thing. Um, it's negative when they win the election. It stays negative for months after they win the election. They announce they're going to form a government. It's negative. And then when it seems that they're not going to form a government, then it spikes up to plus 2.5%. Right. And now it's back down to like under 1%, but it's still positive. Correct. So, okay, Anna, first, why are we looking at the Italian two-year bond yield? So the reason that everyone is talking about the two-year Italian bond yield is because we saw the biggest spike that we've seen since, I believe, 1989. And you saw other anxiety in the market, but the two-year was what really moved. And and why the two-year really moved appears to be a few things. But the main thing is that there was just a tremendous amount of selling pressure. You had a lot of macro hedge funds that were short selling. You had a lot of domestic investors who were trying to trim their positions. And also, you'd had a lot of foreign investment into Italy over the past year. Because overall in the market, you could sometimes get a little bit more yield. And it seemed like it a lot of the crisis had subsided. So... Consequently, you had a tremendous amount of pressure, but then you didn't have any buyers. So essentially, we had what is called a buyer strike, which you have a lot of selling pressure, but we don't have a lot of market makers that are there to be the other side of the trade. So, okay, but why are people selling? Why were people selling? Part of the reason people are selling is because there was legitimately a concern that the action that the president took could lead to snap elections. The snap elections could have led to even more strength of the five-star movement in the league, which could have created more volatility in Italy and in the Eurozone. So there was legitimately a concern. But then what happened is that when you have significant selling pressure and you end up in a liquid market, and this became a very illiquid market, there was a period of time you couldn't even get prices. What then ends up happening is that that just pushes the price down and pushes the price down and pushes the price down and you see this type of spike. Okay, so we had we had a bunch of like very weird price action in the Italian two-year bond. Um, I think in terms of the fundamentals, the, the main thing which I took away from the whole debacle was that when it looked like there might need to be new elections. It wasn't so much that people were worried that there would be new elections because elections happen every five minutes in Italy. The problem was that people were worried in the wake of this nomination of a Eurosceptic finance minister, which apparently was a deal breaker for seven minutes in Italy, um, that the five-star movement and the league would run in these hypothetical future elections on an explicitly anti-Euro platform. It it was basically like 
Brexit contagion fear, what of the euro, it's all falling yeah. apart, if, like big if picture Italy, If Italy leaves panic. the euro, that is genuinely catastrophic for Italy and for the world. Um, but interestingly, it all seems to have resolved itself with literally with the league whitewashing their anti-euro symbol off their headquarters. And the league sort of doing this wonderful Orwellian, we have never been against the euro <laughs> and we are totally pro-euro and the five-star movement is like, yeah, we, we hate all of the technocrats, but we love the euro. So effectively, the big worry, which was um, a euro-skeptic possible, um, what are we going to call it? Italive. Italive. I like that one. Um, People are saying Italexit, but... I, it, Italexit I it is bad, but, but Quitaly is good. Quitaly is nice. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, but that's not like, going to happen. It's like it's actually kind of. I mean, as you're following the ups and downs all week, it's first it's this like utter panic. Like Italy is the next one to go. They got these populists in charge, and they want to leave the euro. And it's the next Brexit. And oh my God, Europe's going to explode, and everyone's freaking out. This is my like high school version of what just happened. And then by midweek, they're like, mm. and then it's you know the president said, no, we're not going to do that. And then there's more panic. And then blah 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 blah. It all evens out. And now at the end of the week, it's like, no. And now Europe everyone's fine. And, and, and now is, everyone's just looking at Spain far. instead. Yeah, yeah. No, but if you and I don't think we're probably going to have a story. huge market reaction to Spain because I think if this had been a more liquid market, you wouldn't have seen this type of reaction. There would have been a little bit of movement, mm-hmm. but it was the technical element in the market that created the panic and then panic begets more panic right and if something is falling spectacularly the last thing you want to do in the in the market cliche is try to catch a falling knife so you wait until the panic subsides before you come in and buy um and as you say in spain which has always also managed to um kick out its sort of gray-bearded technocrat prime minister Rajoy and replace him with the a socialist who has 80 seats in a 350 seat parliament and like what could possibly go wrong because the this new guy has to rely on a, ra- a ragtag coalition of separatists to to try and pass anything um so Spain is also in sort of political chaos right now but there's no market chaos because I guess you don't have those technical market factors precisely but even though I think that no one really thinks that Italy is going to leave the currency union. That doesn't make a lot of sense. But I do think what we are seeing in Italy, what we're seeing in Spain, what we've seen in essentially every European election is concerning because what we're seeing is the breakdown of traditional parties, the fracturing of electorates, which is leading to the development of weak coalition governments. And that is not only going to stop any reforms, further integration, but it is likely to create more instability in the countries and then lead to further political problems. And I would disagree with that because I would say that Italy has had weak coalition governments since 1946, that Italy has basically always had weak coalition governments. It has had 65 governments, I think, since 1946. And the markets and everyone else and the European Union has always been able to deal with weak coalition governments because that's what Italy always has. I think Spain is a little bit different because it's a more it's a younger democracy and um it still hasn't quite worked out whether it's a union there's a there's a big big separatist movement going on in Catalonia right now and that whole issue has not been resolved to anyone's satisfaction. Um but there are 28 members of the European Union. It is 
of its nature a you know a coalition of a whole bunch of people who right. don't really agree I, with each other but and I, it somehow works it, 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 there's just a heightened sensitivity right now to things that maybe you would have ignored you know years ago but now with with brexit with trump um with this like disturbing rise in nationalism and populism i think there's like um they're just like a magnifying glass on maybe situations that, like you said, aren't really new, but feel scary to people because there is this almost like worldwide sort of surge of populism, surge of nationalism, this retreat from globalism that we're seeing everywhere. We, like, yeah. Any little sign of it has people really paying attention, really freaking out about it in a I, new way. I, I just want to say that, yes, it is true that in Italy, this isn't abnormal. But in the entire Eurozone, the amount of fracturing we've seen is abnormal. The fact that we have as many AFD members in the Bundestag is abnormal. Where the fact that France, their their biggest parties were breaking down, that's abnormal. It is abnormal. And certainly, yeah, we have, I mean, Macron, I can't even remember the name of his party, but it didn't exist three mm-hmm. years ago mm-hmm. um we and and that party swept the elections it's not just that he became president but his party then swept the parliamentary elections and um in march it, isn't that it on march there you go well done we've remembered um and i did not google that <laughs> <laughs> um we if you look at Greece, you know, they elected a bunch of populists. But I feel like I feel like what's interesting is that when the populists come into power, and this is what we've seen like in Italy in the space of 24 hours, when the populists come into power, they tend not actually to be quite as scary as people thought they were. This is certainly true. If you look at what's happening, it's very similar to what happened in Greece, where you had Syriza and the independent Greeks, which are very strange bedfellows, forming a government. It created all this angst and anxiety. We had that referendum that nobody remembers. And then ultimately, they did exactly what they were told to do. Now, I think that is probably going to happen in a lot of places. So short term, I'm not saying that I think the eurozone is going to collapse. But I think this is a disturbing trend. Because you like having standard parties who've been around for decades just kind of like doing the same thing they've always done. I like having competent governments that <laughs> can actually enact on change. <laughs> because I, as a as a Brit, I can tell you that we have two standard parties who've been around for decades, the Conservatives and Labour, and they are both at this point just incomprehensibly incompetent. And I would dearly love some British version of En Marche to come in and sweep them both away. And I have no reason to want to keep either of them. I mean, you could make the same case in the United States, only the problem seems to be that the new blood coming in, these new nationalist populist parties just seem worse than the status quo. I mean, uh, with Trump, we don't have a new party, but we certainly have a new MO, and it's not any better. Trump is worse. worse. I mean, Trump is definitely worse than anything that we're seeing in um, in Europe. And this is the other thing. This segment is going to run long because we also have to mention the other big international political development of this week, which was the steel and aluminium tariffs actually came in. We have 25% tariffs on Canada, people, on Canada. <laughs> it's completely bonkers. And no one in Europe is doing anything that is in that insane. And actually, Justin Trudeau came out and said, I am going to team up with my European friends and we are just going to take 
Donald Trump to court in the WTO and say what you are doing is completely illegal. And there's this kind of axis of sane between Canada and Europe uh, allied against the completely crazy that Trump is doing. Right. But then underneath the access of sane is all this other stuff that's bubbling up that seems to align with the insane American situation. And I think that causes like heightened anxiety everywhere on everything. You know? Exactly. Part of the reason we've had sanity in Europe is because we've had a long period of a stable, powerful government in Germany. And if throughout Europe, we're now going to see more instability at the same time that you have other powerful countries like the United States who are electing crazy people, this is not going to bode well. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. So let's talk about the most technocratic, from from like the big political to the really gnarly technocratic, gory details of not just Dodd-Frank, but the Volcker rule, which was this little bit of Dodd-Frank, which was thrown in at the last minute, um, which people thought would do good somehow. And I am of the opinion that probably did do a bit of good, but it was never really enforced. Anyway, the Volcker rule um, is being changed. And Maybe. Emily, <laughs> are, are you are you sad about this? Um, look, at, I went and read the Federal Reserve's memo about this, and I can't pretend to have understood it completely. I'm sure we can have readers uh, email us and explain it to me. Um, I feel like this is just another sign of our federal government's penchant for bank deregulation lately. I mean, it was um, that other the other rule, the cap rule, right? That, they, that was the medium-sized banks. This medium is more the big, si the big banks. So, I mean, it looks like these are s relatively small tweaks. Banks are still under the Volcker rule prohibited from pro what they call proprietary trading, just like trading on your own account, the kind of stuff that got them in trouble a decade ago. That's still verboten. But um, they sort of eased up on some other things. They eased up on the ways banks have to prove um, intent. Yeah. So CEO, basically, it, I, the way I think about it is that the Volcker rule is basically moving from a rules-based system to a principles-based system. That it used to be, or it still is um, for the time being, that banks had to basically point to every single trade they did and be able to say, this trade we're doing as part of our banking activities yeah. and for clients, right. and it's not a prop trade. Right. And, 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 and especially if it's less than 60 days, we need to really prove that it's not a prop trade. We're yeah. not just speculating here. There was an assumption of guilt for all short-term trading. So then banks had to justify every trade, which made no sense because this is a tremendous amount of data that they have to collect. And also, the regulators don't have time to actually go through right. all of and this. The reg so, so, so what happened was the regulators more or less ignored this en enormous like compliance headache that was being put onto the banks and the banks were furious because they were like we have eight thousand compliance people crawling over every single trade and you regulators aren't even looking at it why are we doing this and 
while I am perfectly happy to be very prejudiced against the banks, um, it does seem clear that this way of organizing it wasn't very useful from a regulatory point of view because the regulators weren't using this information and they weren't trying to enforce anything and it wasn't really working. And so the idea, as I understand it, is for the regulators to now come out and say, let's enforce this at a much higher level. Instead of trying to do it on a trade-by-trade basis, we're going to get the CEOs to sign off personally and say, we are not doing prop trading. And then what you can do is you can actually go along to the CEO and you can say, hey, look at all of these trades you're doing. You're doing prop trading and now we're going to come down and 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 say you're, you're not allowed to do that. Now, I'm not saying that the regulators are going to be that active, but under the new rules, they have more power to be active and to be active at the CEO level than the old system, which was at like the individual trader level. And I don't, I, I could not see how that was really going to be helpful. From yeah, I mean, point of view. It, it doesn't seem like that big of a deal in it, in the specificity of it. But in the aggregate, I just think it points to sort of this like gentle and not so gentle in a lot of cases, rolling back of financial regulations that we're seeing right now. I mean, especially um, at the CFPB, for example, which is just seems to have been gutted. So the so CFPB I, has been gutted. I mean, I, I think this is actually a very good point that the big picture is that we have a bunch of slash and burn deregulators being installed by Trump all right. over the place. Not so much at the Fed. Jay Powell is not a slash and burn deregulator. He's a very like mild man and technocrat. You have Lael Brainerd, who was, you know, a kind of good, solid lefty Obama appointee. Mm-hmm. She's in favor of this. You have Paul, Paul Volcker himself coming out in favor right. of I, this. I, I just want to point out that I would actually argue that what's happening here isn't even really deregulation. It's just clarifying the rule Mm. because now there are risk limits. So the regulators can say, are you breaching your risk limits as opposed to give us millions of trades that we're never going to go through? I also want to point out that this is being done for an important reason, which is that the crackdown on proprietary trading has also reduced the ability of banks to engage in market making activities, which is important going back to the last conversation Mm -hmm. we had, because market making is what makes markets liquid. And in a crisis, you do not want illiquid markets. In other words, you would have wanted some bank to swoop in and buy a bunch of Italian right. bonds when everyone was refusing. Exactly. To buy and them. they are not going to because now, A, any type of shorter term trading they're going to do, they're going to have to justify. And B, because of capital requirements, it's much more expensive to do that. And C, because of all of these regulations and trends in the banking industry, you don't have as many people even working in trading desks. Right. But. Uh- But I mean, and that all seems necessary. Market making seems necessary. It's all necessary stuff. But then when you look at the banks, like they're fine. Profits are up. You know, I'm good. I'm also always going to (laughs) say she is freaking out people. No, it's just well, well, first of all, and we don't have to go into a huge segment on like bond market liquidity, but that actually is, is a major concern in the market. But also when you're talking about profitability of banks, one of the main ways you look at profitability is return on equity. And return on equity isn't even close to where it was pre-crisis. And it's only very recently even exceeded the bank's cost of capital. So the idea that banks are just insanely profitable is not entirely accurate. But they're pretty profitable. Are you saying they're not making well, so No, like, no. You see, what, 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 Anna is, what Anna is doing here is she, you know, is using this measure called return on equity. Like when you and I look at profits, we look at, um, you know, dollars or like, oh, or possibly you know um you know 
cents per share or mm-hmm. something like that. What Anna is doing is she's looking at a ratio mm-hmm. um, where the denominator is this, this thing called equity, which we can't, we're not going to bother defining. But the what happened after the financial crisis was that regulators forced banks to have much more of it. Right. And so your return on equity, if you're going to look at that particular ratio, has gone down just mm-hmm. because there's more equity. This is exactly what it should be. If, if return on equity hadn't gone down, that would be very worrying. Because you want the banks to be holding a lot of equity money. Yes. So that they Loss don't absorbing need to capital. rely on big bailouts and freak everyone out. So maybe the return on equity shouldn't be so high. I would just say that, (laughs) yes, it is certainly true that part of the reason that ROEs have declined is because obviously you have a larger denominator, but you also have had, you've had lower rates as well, which has hurt banks' profitability as well if you're looking at the numerator. And moving forward, return on equity is important in terms of how banks can lend, how banks can stimulate the economy. So I'm not saying banks are doing- Why is it important? I don't understand that. I, I don't think that's true. I don't think there's any empirical reason to believe that le- like bank- banks will lend when it's profitable to do that, whether or not you know they're doing it at a high ROE or a low ROE. Right. But the more equity you have, the more capital you have to put aside, the less you can lend. And that's, again, by design. Yeah, I understand. And I, I'm not saying that I think that many of the rules that were put in place are, are a bad thing. I mean, I, I do think that banks are much safer than they used to be. Now, one could argue that a lot of that risk has just been shifted to other parts of the market. Which All is, I, again, by design. Yeah, it's true. All I'm saying is that the idea that banks are incredibly profitable, I would just disagree with. Not you're saying they used to be much more incredibly. Yeah, they, 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 they were like more profitable pre-crisis. Well, no, yeah. but I, <laughs> we don't have to go into a whole discussion of like why, like, no. All right, so back uh, to okay. the vocal yeah, yeah, rule. Yeah. Okay, okay, so so I mean, so I will say that we, we did get a request um, via email um, to talk about narrow banking. We are not going to do that this week but depending on the results of the swiss referendum we might conceivably um have a segment about narrow banking and um and what that means and fractional reserve banking and my brain is melting already but if you know someone who can talk simply and clearly about the end of fractional reserve banking and narrow banking and what that would mean in practice um please don't recommend michael wolf um do send in some names, slate money at slate.com, and we will possibly talk about it if we can bring ourselves to, and only if the Swiss referendum goes that way. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Let's talk about sandwiches. Yes. <laughs> okay, like enough of the wonky stuff. I think we really need to talk about prêt à manger, which is not. French, for all that it has a French-sounding name. It has French words in its name. Um, it's an English company. It's an English company because no country loves its, its Sarnies 
more than England. England is the is the global capital of sandwiches, and they really. It always used to be Marks and Spencers, but now it's Pret. But we should say why we're talking about Pret. Why are we talking about Pret? Because they were purchased or they to by JAB Holdings, which apparently owns every fast casual coffee sandwich and bagel chain you've maybe ever heard of, including like Einstein Bagels, Stumptown, Pete's, Caribou, Aubon Payne. Panera, Krispy Kreme, like they own basically everything. They're this As, private If it German has a French-sounding name, they own it. If yes. it has an American-sounding name, they own it. If they, if if you're getting like Intelligentsia or Stumptown, they own it. They are becoming this huge global snacking conglomerate. And I am all in favor of this because if I was the Riemann family, um, this is this big billionaire German family. They're like, we are going to make a dynastic bet on snacks and i feel that's a good bet because everyone snacks I, yeah although it's, it's, I, it's not snacks it's, it's more like fast casual dining it's like there's burger king mcdonald's etc and then the level you level up from there and you get your like kind of fancyish sandwiches from pret right i mean it's it, this new segment really that's really hot right now it's also coffee, coffee. It, yes, this is and, really and this coffee, is really yes. where jab is trying to compete with Nestle for market share in co- the coffee space. And there is a belief that there's more room to grow at Pret in their supply of hot drinks. Pret coffee is not bad. It's not bad. And um, one thing I thought was really interesting, so Pret has sort of this great like employee vibe. When when they were bought, they, they said all their employees are getting um, a thousand pound bonuses. There's 12,000 employees and everyone's getting a bonus because they got bought and they do a lot of like team bonuses and their whole thing is like workers have to be really cheerful and they'll randomly give you free stuff like the other day I walked into a Pret and ordered a coffee and they said just take it and I was like are you serious and I was looking around like am I being pranked like what's happening just take it and that's policy apparently Um, and I was just curious I wonder if that sort of ethos will stay when they're under this new owner. I don't know I don't know how JAB is sort of more I think they're most they're think pretty hands off. Probably and I think they'll be fine because they were able to maintain this culture, this focus on consumers and employees while they were owned by private equity. And I mm-hmm. think that this was actually an example of really like a really great example of private equity because when um, Bridgepoint advisors bought them, they were far less far less profitable, and they allowed the company to grow, to maintain their culture. They were able to cut costs in other ways, and now the company has been able to hire many more employees. Management is doing well. The clients of Bridgepoint did very well so. because they sold Pret for how much? It was like one point five billion, two billion. Yeah, and I think with debt, it's like two billion. I mean, this is so. This is an enormous acquisition it's a, it's a great exit for the private equity owners um and then the one point i wanted to make about this which is a little bit off sandwiches maybe is is about ownership and it's basically that you can do things if you're a family because jb is not a publicly listed company it is not a private equity shop which needs to exit within five to ten years um it has a time horizon of multiple generations. You know, they're investing for their great-great-grandkids. And when you're doing that, you can, you're looking, you're valuing companies in different ways. And what you value is something which is going to be along around for many, many decades. 
and which is going to retain its value for many, many decades. And what you don't need to do is massively increase the value in five years like the private equity people do, did. And what you also don't need to do is show constant growth, mm-hmm. like the stock market demands. If Pret just stays exactly the size that it is right now and has exactly the profitability that it is, has right now, or maybe just grows a little bit, but just manages to do that for, you know, the next 75 years, probably the Riemann family will be happy with that. And why is that good? Because it it's just a new, it's a different source of patient capital and of being able to have a productive asset which is going to last for decades. That's good, right? Correct. But I think that sometimes there's a bit of a prejudice against the idea of growth as though pushing companies to grow is a bad thing, whereas that is how companies are able to employ more people. That is how economies grow. That is how you get bigger companies that actually are better to their workers than small companies. I think, though, food is an interesting example where oftentimes bigger and growing faster turns out to be just like really bad. Like I'm thinking of, say, Chipotle and, you know, McDonald's picked them up for a while and then then they went public. Right. And then they tried to grow really, really fast. And and, I mean, things sort of like took a turn. I just with food, I think it's it's different. Yeah, I think growth is too right now is in very kind of like a a state of chaos. There was a good piece in the journal about all these packaged food companies are really struggling right now because consumer tastes are tending toward like the slow growth model, essentially, like people want smaller companies. They don't want to go to chains anyway. They want, you know, they want to keep it. Yeah. And remember that what we're talking about is is a sector which in the grand scheme of things is not growing like the amount that people eat is not really growing. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of what you're talking about when you talk about growth is like a zero-sum game where like you're growing at the expense of someone else. And that doesn't create employment in aggregate. If you look at what Warren Buffett does, here's, here's another example. Um, he loves to buy stocks of growing companies. But at the same time, he also loves to buy companies like Seize candy, say, and seize candy. As far as I can tell, out as far as I can tell, doesn't grow. He isn't trying to like make you know open new seize candy stores every month. He's just perfectly happy for seize candy to be seize candy and for it to be the size that it is, and it throws off a bunch of profits, and he uses those profits to buy stocks on the stock market, and that's fine. He doesn't need everything to be growing all the time. I think he entirely needs everything to be growing. The rate that things are growing is completely different, of course. Like when you're valuing a company and you're looking at expected growth rates, of course, if it's a younger company, if it's in certain sectors like tech or something, you're going to expect a much faster growth rate. If it's in other sectors, you're going to you're going to expect a much lower growth rate. And once it becomes a more mature company, then yes, of course, you expect it to grow, but you don't expect it to grow at exponential levels. That's the entire market. So I think that when people talk about growth and they talk about Wall Street, there's this idea that everybody in Wall Street expects every company to grow at like, you know, incredible multiples. And that just isn't true. It depends on the type of company. It depends so on the stage of the company. Growth is sometimes good. Sometimes I think growth is. Good. Yeah, I mean, sometimes I think, people expect too much and it's bad. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I, there, there are certainly times where companies try to grow too quickly or they just try to grow in, in a way that doesn't really make any sense. Like when Pret was owned by McDonald's and they did try to expand much too quickly. Mm-hmm. And, Chipotle, you know, rather. 
No, no, no Pratt. Ma- no, Pratt. Oh, Pratt. Yeah, they were. I, I forgot yeah. the Pratt. This is also a story McDonald's. about McDonald's not being good <laughs> at buying other food companies. But they, they, they are good at realizing that they're not good and then selling That's them. That's true. <laughs> good, yes. good on them. Yeah. So I'm just saying that I think that, yes, it is true that private companies can sometimes not have quite the short-term issues that maybe you would have with larger companies. But I think the idea that growth in itself is bad, I just disagree with. I just think that there are different the, the, the different owners look at companies in different ways. Um, private equity owners look with an eye to an exit. Public company owners, shareholders, generally want substantial growth because a lot of what they're doing is they're buying the stocks because they want the stock to go up. Right. <laughs> um, whereas families, like, you know, they're not, they're, there is no stock for them f- to go up. They don't have an exit strategy. They just want to own this forever. And if you want to own it forever, then your incentives are slightly different. It does seem like a nicer, friendlier way, maybe. <laughs> Anna, yeah, I, business. Like we see it in, yeah, in Anna, media. In media nice companies. and friendly. Why can't you be nice, nice and friendly, Anna? Nice and friendly. I, I'm the evil one over here. <laughs> it's not true. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Okay, let's have a numbers round. I think, yes. Um, Why not? I have a good number here. $523 is an all-time high for the... Average monthly car loan payment in the U.S. if you're buying a new car has now hit an all-time car of $523. I'm like, wow, wow, that's a lot of money to pay for your car every month, and that's the average. That's Is that the mean or the median? That's the mean, um, and it is for new cars so it doesn't that doesn't include people financing used cars but if you're buying a new car on average you are paying $523 a month which is like rent yeah that is quite a lot i would be interested what the median is <laughs> just cuz i you could be skewed upwards if you yeah. have a lot of very expensive car purchases but a lot of those are cash i guess that's true i'd just be curious isn't there something going on with auto loan defaults right now too? Aren't rate aren't defaults high? No, defaults no? have come down. Oh. Defaults are actually almost near all time lows. What? Um, weird but true. Um, this is partly a function. Actually, in both of these facts are both a function of a decline in subprime lending in the in new cars. Uh. So. People with bad credit find it increasingly difficult to buy cars. People with 
bad credit also generally often by cheaper cars. And so you're getting fewer people buying cheaper cars because they have bad credit. And then the rich people who have good credit are not defaulting. Fascinating. Interesting. Anna. My number is 52%. So in a recent poll, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador. AMLO. <laughs> yes. Um, is receiving 52% of the projected vote in the July 1st Mexican elections. And this should be somewhat concerning for most people. He is a very far-left uh, candidate. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. That is like everyone... You, your entire life right now is being concerned about like non-technocratic candidate. AMLO is a perennial candidate in Mexico. Um, he's not anywhere to the left of, um, say, Alan Garcia in Peru, who turned out to be fine. Well, okay. We, when you're talking about AMLO, we don't know which AMLO we're going to get. We we could get the AMLO of you know a lifetime of rhetoric about nationalization and. Or we could get an expropriation, or we could get the AMLO from when he was mayor of Mexico City. That was more pragmatic. We don't know, but whatever we're going to get, it's almost certainly, if we get AMLO, it's not going to help Mexico, I would argue, because he's almost certainly going to, if not retard the reforms that have been pushed through, but he's certainly not going to move forward with them. He's certainly not going to do more to open up the economy. And at the same time, as you have NAFTA negotiations going on, I think that we're going to only have Justin Trudeau as the only sane person in the room. And and his chief negotiator, Christian Freeland, who we know and love, my former yes. boss. Emily. My number, I'm going for a classic, is 3.8%, which today is Friday. The jobs numbers came out and the unemployment rate is 3.8%, the lowest it's been since April 2000. Today is Saturday. No, well, recording on Friday, Felix. People know that, right? It's Don't, good to that's know a that. secret. No, no. We come out live at like four o'clock on the Saturday morning. <laughs> we all, we get up very early on Saturdays. All right. So anyway, <laughs> yesterday, before this number came out, what's interesting is our president, who we've already established, is insane. Um, at 7 a.m. or thereabouts, tweeted um, something like, looking, looking forward. forward to seeing the employment numbers essentially hinting that they were going to be good. Which they were. Which they were. But the problem is the president gets to see the numbers, um, which apparently Trump saw them the night before. Larry Kudlow, you know, showed him the numbers. And uh, you're not supposed to say anything. You're supposed to keep your trap shut. But Trump obviously is not good at that and broke, you know, decades of precedent by hinting that the numbers were going to be strong, which people kind of knew already. But now everyone's freaking out about this. They're like... The president, you know, moved markets basically by doing this. Now everyone's going to be looking to his tweets to sort of game the system. Yeah. And I mean, I, it, 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 it could even be like if you really, you know, follow this to its logical conclusion, you could wind up in this weird world where if the president doesn't tweet yes, about the upcoming exactly. drop yeah. report, then that's a sign that's going right. to be bad. And exactly. It, it, it raises questions. This guy's getting the numbers early. Who else is he telling? Which ones of his he friends talks, are trading on the numbers? Exactly. Yeah, he talks although, to his billionaire friends every night, and he has no idea that he's not allowed to talk about the jobs report because he's a moron. And so, who knows? Or he knows he's not supposed to, and he doesn't care, and he's right. on the horn to Hannity the night before, and God knows what Hannity's doing with the numbers. I mean, it's really... Oh, no, I 100% agree ah. with you, but good <laughs> job numbers were already priced into the market. 
I'm just like, saying. I, mean, I, I no, completely agree with you. I'm just saying. Mean, but I mean, who knows what's down the road? Right. Oh, and what uh, yeah, Felix is agreed. saying now every and I think month, true. we're all going to be looking. What is he saying? What isn't he saying? You know, it's. Yeah, completely agree with that. I, I just want to know, can the president be prosecuted for insider trading? Is that a high crime and misdemeanor? <laughs> Maybe. I mean, there's or maybe not. I'm sure. I'm sure there are lawyers who say that. I'm saying if can't. someone in the um, in the labor department did that, they'd be fired. Oh, no totally. question. One hundred percent. Can you imagine that? There's literally no government employee who could tweet that out who had access to the numbers who wouldn't be fired on the spot. No, completely. It's it's enough to make you want to launch the five star party and uh, <laughs> <really>. <laughs> maybe not the five star party. Could we have another party? Six star party. We always go one better here in America. Or yeah, or or thirteen stars. How many stars? Wait, fifty oh fifty boy. stars. Here we go. Fifty stars. That's <laughs> the, the fifty number. star party. The yeah. fifty star party. The because we have fifty star, nice like centrist, flag. reasonable party. <laughs> now I'm going to launch the fifty star party, and it's going to all be. We're just going to take all of the stripes off the off the flag, and it's yeah. just going to be the fifty stars. And we won't tweet. No one will tweet. In and the no more tweeting. Party. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the never tweet party. <laughs> yes. Exactly. Yes. Okay. If you want to join the Never Tweet Party, <laughs> send us an email on, on Slate Money at Slate. Or tweet at us. Many thanks <laughs> to everyone who wrote in having read the papal encyclical, which we are very impressed by all of you and well done all of you, you're amazing, especially the theologians who managed to explain that this is all written in this kind of weird idiolect which lives only inside the Vatican. Um, and so yeah, keep the emails coming because we love them. Let us know if you have any guests that you think can explain narrow banking or anything else. Thank you for all of your suggestions for Germany experts. We are going to hopefully have a Germany episode sometime soon. Many thanks to Dan Schrader for producing. Many thanks to you all for listening. And we will talk to you next week on Sleep Money. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.